You are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. Hello, this is Scott Chapin, um, and we are going to conduct one of the first bicycle retail radio shows. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I uh, run our uh, bike shop insurance program and other insurance programs. I work for Marsh McLennan, um, and I've been uh, a proud partner and of the NBDA for many years. And I am going to be interviewing David DeKaiser, um, former owner of the Bike Hub. Uh, he and his wife, Rebecca Cleveland, had owned that for uh, many years. And uh, I actually, uh, David was a client of mine for, for quite a while. And I always thought it was really interesting in our conversations uh, discussing sort of the business practices and and uh, now that he has more free time we, he gets to do things like this so uh, Dave do you want to just talk a little bit about your your background how you got into the bicycle industry and then how you ended up um, owning your own shop for many years well I was hoping you weren't going to ask me a first question that could take an hour <laughs> to, to answer I'm give you, I'll give you I'll give you a much less than an hour <laughs> okay I'll, I'll try to make it as quick as possible then um, I, I grew up uh, racing BMX bikes in the early 80s and then uh, transitioned to mountain bikes and I think it was my freshman year in college at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay I started working at a bike shop and just Kind of fell in love with it after college started working full-time and within a few years we were trying to uh, a friend of mine and i were trying to buy that business um, after about 10 years of that it just it, it wasn't panning out so my wife and i decided to open up the bike hub in De Pere, wisconsin and we ran that successfully for 18 years and we sold it in february of uh, this year Fantastic. And I've actually read a few of the articles that you've uh, recently posted or written, and it was, it was kind of interesting how you had uh, definitely had a succession plan in, and I'm wondering when you sold the shop, how long had you actually been thinking about and planning for that, or, or did it happen really quickly? I would say probably 10 years. So about okay. se seven or eight years into the business, um, my wife and I had always uh, had a desire to live in the Western United States someplace. And Green Bay, Wisconsin is obviously not that. It's colder and darker and wetter and all of that stuff. So about eight years into the business, we actually um, went through the process of, of trying to sell the business a little bit. And things didn't feel right. It, it felt, uh, it, it just, it, I guess for a lack of better words, it just didn't feel right at that point in time. But when we kind of wrapped that up and we decided, what do we want to do next? Um, as far as the business, I, I started concentrating on profitability because the, the uh, business broker that we were working with, it became really obvious to me quickly that you're only as good as your last two or three years worth of financials. And, if you could build that business up, then you had something to sell and you can't sell a business that isn't profitable um, unless you find you know, the needle in the haystack type of thing. So we just, we really worked on, on becoming profitable. And in that, uh, we started really harvesting every 
little bit of data that we could out of our point of sale system. And the last four to five years, uh, we really ran the business with the intent that we that we wanted to sell it. And that was, uh, you know, we were successful in the end there. Interesting. Uh, and did you get, so we've had some conversations and I'll ask you to tell a story about kickstands because I, I just, I thought that was really interesting how, how you actually had drill down data on, on that. But, you know, before I have you tell that little story, what resources did you turn to, to actually try to figure out how to become very profitable and to be able to have your books be so detailed to the nth degree of for any type of product service etc did did you try to figure out a lot of that on your your own or did your accountant help you or tell me a little bit about how you actually became good at that yeah so on the on the books end of things um we had a an accounting firm that i had my accountant and then a quickbooks pro advisor so i had somebody kind of on call all the time that could log into my software and tell me if I had something goofed up. But the, you know, the, the books part of it is, is actually pretty easy. If you have a, a good accountant and a QuickBooks, per, we use QuickBooks, some people use something, uh, you know, a different program. Uh, but if you have somebody that's good, um, kind of watching your stuff and, and kind of tuning you up, you know, once or twice a year um, before tax season, you know, so kind of in late spring and then early fall, I, and it would only take a half an hour or so for my pro advisor gal to to go through everything and kind of make sure that it looked right. Um, for the business side of things, we used Lightspeed Point of Sale, which, you know, is I, I'm thinking now is getting to be one of the bigger ones along with Ascend. Um, and through kind of trial and error. So, you know, going back, I said I, it took about 10 years to to feel confident to sell the business. And those last five years, so the five years leading up to that, we were really honing in on making sure that all the data that was in our point of sale was was really good. And I think it takes a while to to start to understand what you're actually looking at and and pulling up reports and all of that. You know, it, it's not something that happens overnight. And if you are putting in junk data and just using your point of sale like a cash register. Um, you're never really going to get get what you want out of it, and it becomes so easy after after you you know it becomes second nature after a while to to know what you're looking at, how to pull up those reports. But I loved to experiment, you know, with uh, uh, you know we talked about the kickstands a couple of times, uh, but you, you know you would take a, a service item you know, changing a flat tire or doing a tune up and, and you would experiment with, you know, could you get a few more dollars? Could you add uh, items on to that labor items on and, and that type of thing? And you you have little successes and you just start spreading those over, you know, the rest of your uh, your your business. And that's kind of how we got to that point, I think, of, uh, you know, figuring out our point of sale and the QuickBooks and all that was we just we made a conscious effort to to really uh, immerse ourselves in it. So did with looking at you know hard goods, soft goods, um, service in that that last ten years of doing business, what sector actually grew the quickest once you started tinkering with 
you know, what you can charge. Was it the, the service side? Did that become from a, yeah. from a growth yep. standpoint? Why don't you talk a little bit about um, that and, and maybe how you decided to look at that sort of carte blanche for, for everything that they're doing, having a charge for that and how that really overall affected your, your profitability on, on that side of things. So I think the industry as a whole, what I always experienced was when people did tune-ups, somebody would come in and they, they'd get a tune-up and, you know, your, say your tune-up is $50 or it's 75, whatever, whatever you're charging. But then they would buy a pair of uh, brake pads or get some new tires, uh, you know, or what bar tape, whatever it was. And nobody was charging to install the bar tape or the brake pads. But if somebody came in and they just needed brake pads, we would, we would charge them for the brake pads and, and in an installation fee. And even that was new probably 10 years ago. You know, it used to be if you bought it, you, you got it installed for free. So <laughs> we, we just started tack, you know, our, our labor skews basically in the computer went from a couple of tune-ups and like a flat labor to all of a sudden there was 50 items in there and you were charging for each of those items and it, it as you as anybody that's worked in a shop can imagine it, you know on a tune-up if you're getting a bottom you know if it's a good tune-up you go from a $50 tune-up and a, you know $25 $30 worth of parts to all of a sudden you're double or tripling that that uh, repair ticket by adding these things on the scariest part was I thought for sure people would push back at it and the the exact opposite happened. We had zero pushback and I think people are used to it. You know, if you went to the dentist or the car repair plate, you know, everything is itemized and uh, consumers expect that it doesn't shock them. But in our industry, it's just, you know, people throw everything on for free. We even got to the point where, you know, if somebody was buying a basket or something with a new bike, um, some of those things we would charge to install if they were, you know, hard. Training wheels were one of those things that were always hard. So we, you know, we started. If something took a little more time, we would uh, we would start tacking on a labor charge to it. So labor was the big one that opened it up to us. And so did and then, so that that sort of you. My next question you sort of alluded to. So you didn't necessarily increase your shop rate per hour it was it more no. just you were getting more just by doing everything carte blanche yeah just making sure that we we're kind of line iteming everything was the term that was always in my head was if if a mechanic was going to do a tune-up and you know there's the items that are included in the tune-up if something was going to be done extra from a labor standpoint then we charged for it and if that answers that question it does. Now, do you think just in general that a lot of shops feel that if they were to either do like you um, by, by actually individually having charges for specific service items or just in general increasing their labor rate, do you think that's a, that fear is unwarranted that the customer will push back? I mean, I know what your experience was, but have you talked to others and where they've had similar experience, like, oh, I thought that we'd lose customers or I thought they would get upset at us or go to a different shop. How real or not real is that, is that fear? I think it's a really unwarranted fear. And most of the dealers, you know, when you, when you talk to a, to a shop, you, you get kind of two answers. There's no way I could do that. My customers would push back. I can't rip them off. This is a, you know, everybody, all of my customers have smartphones and they know what everything costs. Well, that's a funny argument because everybody's got a smartphone no matter where you are. Um, 
and then the the other side of it is the dealers that have started to implement uh you know making sure that they're they're charging for things that are being done from from what i have experienced i don't think anybody's really had much pushback and if you do it's it's small enough that it's you know it's not going to warrant going backwards uh right so you wouldn't it, want to dictate yeah you don't want to dictate your shop policies and procedures for the one half of one percent of people who may uh, say something under their breath about the uh the rate yeah and i i think there's a lot more that would say something under their breath about the. i i, I experience a lot of dealers retailers that are really really afraid that they're going to offend that one out of a hundred customer and mm -hmm. instead of harvesting the 99 out of a hundred they're they're kind of bowing down to that one that might say something and and i get and i get that it's you know you remember the one bad situation um you don't remember all the good ones usually right now did you did you ever have a, a bike team like a lot of shops have where you know, you fly the shop's colors, wear the jersey, and you get a percentage off, or did you did you just avoid doing that altogether? Tell me a little bit about that. So my wife, Rebecca, was a a, a very avid and fairly high level, you know, regionally uh, right. bike racer. So she she was um, kind of the driving force behind the teams. And as time went on and she kind of faded away from the racing scene, um, we did continue with the teams, yes, with discounts and you know the shop flag and all that type of thing. Um, and that was one of the biggest experiments, I think for me and one of the scariest was we basically just stopped, we're done, we didn't do teams anymore. And all of the people that were on the teams that you thought were your best friends, um, they disappeared <laughs> overnight. So they um, are just they were just doing it for the discount. Is that safe to say? Yeah, I mean, we we had a handful of people over the years that were on the discount program. You know, that were on our grassroots teams or our mountain bike team. We had a triathlon team that we were sponsoring. Um, there was a handful of people that I think understood what their role was in, in relation to the shop was to be an ambassador for our store. Right. Um, but it was such a small, it, it was literally, I could count them on, on one hand. And so you would have been better off if you knowing what, what you eventually learned, maybe there was three or four people who were good spokespeople. And if you were to give anything at all, just give it, give them the discount because they were doing all the, the marketing and PR or yeah you basically you know all the referrals so when you sponsor a team you know what are you what are you really looking for you know the the team the racers are going to races where everybody else is sponsored right so they're kind of preaching to the choir and they're preaching to people that are in different churches so they're not going to come to your church anyway um, so you want those per you know the person during the week when they're at work and they're a bike racer and they're they're you know, person in the cubicle next to him says, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about buying a bike instead of that person saying, hey, I know where you can get a good deal because this is where I get my good deals. They say, you want to go down there and talk to them because that's the place to go. You know, they're going to help you out. Price is not an issue. You know, that that shouldn't come up. They're sent, you know, they're asking an expert where to go and they're sending them to an expert. And that usually, you know, that usually doesn't happen. Um, so, but but for me, it was it was during this increase in labor income 
uh, was where I started to realize that our best mechanic, who is also our store manager, was doing the lion's share of the teamwork, uh, team mechanical work. And yeah. a lot of times that was, you know, no charge because it was somebody's tubeless mountain bike tire that wasn't holding air. I mean, he, he was just stuck in these time sinks all the time. And then if we were charging, it was at a discount. So I was tying up my, my best person on this discounted right. business. And uh, it, it was terrifying to cut it off because, it, you know, you're supposed to be in, you know, that's what you're supposed to do if you have a bike shop is you're supposed to sponsor racers and be involved and be, you know, part of the community in parentheses and all that stuff. And uh, for us, as soon as we cut that off, it, uh, it, it was a noticeable increase in our margins that, you know, you can't really. So you're able to track that right away. I mean, how long did it take oh, yeah. you to realize like, oh, we would have been better off if we had never done that? Uh, I would say, you know, so we, I think we stopped doing the teams in the fall of probably 2014 or something. I think it was probably by July of 2015. I could see the data right there. Our, our gross dollars were the same, but our margin had shot up incredibly. Um, staff was much more relaxed. They weren't dealing with, you know, the Friday night uh, emergencies. Freaking out, out racers. Yeah. <laughs> yep. 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 And, and I don't have anything against racers or anything like that. And I think that no. there's shops that probably do have, have it figured out. But I think that if they looked at it as, as far as what it's doing to the bottom line, um, I don't, th I just can't, I can't find the math to work for me personally. A, B, I just don't know another industry that takes what should be its best customers and gives them discounts. Right. On, on everything, you know, I have a, a one of my closest friends owns a fly fishing store, and he always laughed at me. He's like, my best customers come in and buy stuff all the time, but you know, nobody gets sponsored really for fly fishing. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, but so he had these great customers. Where, where in biking, it's like they go through this progression where all of a sudden now they're a racer and you, they buy your shop jersey and you give them a discount, and they're your best customer. <laughs> No, and I I, I, I kid around because I, I used to be a sponsored racer myself, and I keep thinking about all the times the day before the race, like, something's not working, something not, it's like, they never charge me for any of that, I'm, I'm thinking back, I'm like, gosh, you know, that's ridiculous, and and uh, for that, it just, it just seemed strange that I would even ask that, and this was, you know, 20 years ago, and now it's like, no way, like, I just, you know, charge me more, charge me more to help me on Friday before an event. <laughs> exactly. There's just, there's so few industries that have that mentality of we're going to take the, the people that are coming in the most and, and start feeding them discounts. Right. Interesting. Was your shop on a, on a bike path? Yes. Yep. How does being on a path, I mean, was that like a pretty, you know, fairly high dependent variable in your profitability or t tell me a little bit about that. Cause I, I talked to a lot of retail clients and, and they're like one of them that I, I work with, they're about to move to a new location and it's because they want to be by the bike path. I'm just kind of curious what your, what your sense on the value of, of being in that location. So that's one of the things that I never really felt like I was able to put a finger on. Um, Really, you know the the, the people. It's it's a it's a net positive for sure because you have such an incredible test ride experience. You know somebody's not riding around in a parking lot dodging cars. Right. Um, 
so so it's it's a it's a nice experience um we were on a very busy bike path it's a paved rail to trail the fox river trail um you know, from green bay uh way south in in uh, wisconsin and it's next to the fox river so it's you know a lot of it's pretty it's in an urban area so there's uh, you know lots of neighborhoods so it's it's extremely busy um you know, and you, you'd get the odd person that comes up with a flat tire or something that, you know, you would fix. Um, but I, it, it was so hard to quantify because it's just one of those things that feels so good about being on that path. You know, you're, you're where things are happening. Right. Um, the flip side was the front of the store is on a really busy um, road. And I think that the, the uh, exposure there was was probably more important than the bike path but i i had a lot of people that would would argue the the exact opposite to me that would say that the the bike path if you if you have a bike shop and you can be within spitting distance of a place where people can ride um it's always going to be a positive i just don't know how to measure it exactly yeah how to quantify it but for sure from us from a customer experience and the on the specific to the test ride and safety, it's it's all it all makes sense. It just feels good. Yep, hundred percent. Right, totally. So I self-admittedly have ADD, so I'm just jumping all <laughs> over the place, and that's just how this is going to be. So I want you to tell me the kickstand story with the 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 buyer of your the individual that purchased your shop. Um, and I think they were questioning whether or not they should be throwing in kickstands, but I just think the having these metrics is just a perfect example. So I'll, I'll let you go from there. Yeah. So I don't want to give away too much here because the the buyer still, you know, <laughs> right. I don't want to give away any trade secrets or anything like that. But um, the, the way I'll go way way back in time. So the kickstand story started. We were at a, I think I think it was like a trek event years ago, and there was. Uh, everybody gave away kickstands. When you were back in the 90s, you know, it was when you bought a bike, you got a kickstand bottle and cage. And you just threw that stuff in, even though you had to pay for it. And we had some seminar and they they brought this dealer out and he had started charging for kickstands. And this was a really high volume place. And the guy, I, 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 I would love to say who it was, but I don't know, I, I'll get it wrong. Anyway, I think he bought a Cadillac or something based on him, you know, what he had made in kickstands in a year or two. And it, it, it that always stuck with me. So we started charging for kickstands, obviously, right away. So I, I'd been charging for kickstand for, for years. And, you know, kickstands are now like 15 bucks. There's shops that, you know, are getting 20 bucks for like a Greenfield kickstand. And if you're a high volume recreational shop, you get to sell a lot of kickstands. And when, when we were selling the store, um, the buyer, uh, he hasn't, he owns another store in town. And I, and I think either they had been, and he had recently bought that store as well. And I don't remember if he was charging for kickstands or not for sure at that time, but I, I pulled up the data and it was, you know, I think he was pretty shocked at what those numbers were, especially when you go back, you know, five or 10 years and you think, wow, I left all that money on the table um, so to be able to pull up that information um, to know how to get it on on your kickstands or your grips or your you know 
finish line lube or whatever it is, is, is so incredible because you start to see those little successes. And I think that's kind of the moral of that story Right. is, is, is there, se there are several morals to that story. Number one, charge for the things that you, you can, which is basically everything. Consumers are expecting it. Um, B track all of that data so that you can go back and see and see that success because it, it really makes you want to experiment with other things and, and kind of see what you can do. And I, I, I'm excited to see kind of what he does uh, with the business as time goes on, because, it, you know, that was exciting for him to see that um, you could have success with just these little shifts in, in mentality and not just giving things away. Uh, th th those little things that I think the, general in the in the bike industry that people give away are where all of the hidden profits are right and did you um is it safe to say for the last 10 years of you owning the shop you in just about every situation sold all the everything at full margin yeah oh that drove me nuts <laughs> when so that's another one of those things that you know is really common in the industry is when you're buying a bike you get a bunch of stuff for 10 percent off you know or, or right. even 15 percent off and i fought that tooth and nail you know don't even give the person that deal and, and i don't know why the bike business is still like that but you knew when somebody had been to one of your competitors who still was kind of giving away the farm on every sale so yeah, our our goal was um, no discounts on anything. You know, the margins have gotten tighter. The prices of, uh, you know, being in business have have continued to rise, and the margins have kind of come down. There's just not the room to be giving away everything uh, to get a bike sale anymore, in my opinion. Um, so we didn't do the discounts, and we. We really never had an advertised sale in the 18 years that we owned the business, which could be, I think, several podcasts. Um, but yeah, <laughs> we we never we never ran a spring sale or a summer sale or an end of season sale or anything like that um, the entire time that we were open. Interesting. And there's something you just said about uh, margins, profitability. It made me think of you. So you did you own the real estate? at your at the peer location the whole time or did you end up um buying a, a separate place uh, or buying a place that you had been leasing so when we first opened up <clears throat> we were in a strip mall and we we opened in march of 2001 and by about 14 months later it would have been may of 2002 we uh made the offer on the on the property that we ended up buying and that was obviously i think a great decision because it was on a bike path um which wasn't even open really at that point in time but uh yeah so we we uh, we rented in a strip mall um and then moved uh, just a year later to our location where the business still is got it so in my world i i review a lot of leases uh mostly for the insurance and indemnification sections but i see what the lease rates are um and i can only speculate that knowing what i see uh lease rates are in certain parts of the country um certain cities that that is 
definitely a a a big problem for many retailers i mean what are your what are your thoughts on is that is that really a deterrent for profitability um if you are unable to get into a position to purchase uh, your own real estate or what are your overall thoughts on that yeah i think that i think that this might be one of the elephants in the room as far as the industry kind of going forward is if margins continue to shrink labor rates continue to rise i mean there's an article every other every other week about uh, mechanics aren't making enough money <clears throat> and i don't disagree with that but as a retailer those things are all coming for your bottom line you know whether it's your lease rates or the mechanics needing more money etc the sad part is in a lot of areas of the country it's starting to feel like you you can't afford uh you know your occupancy expenses basically because leases are either so expensive or commercial property is so expensive it, there's a lot of areas of the country where it's still in my mind a bargain and yeah and you i can agree. make a bunch of money <clears throat> but i think that there's there there is some really i i don't have an answer to it but i can't imagine being someplace where you know you're 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 spending an exorbitant amount of money uh compared to your uh, your peer that's in Iowa, you know, and you're in California. Because the margins are the same if you're margins in New York City or Hayward, yep. Wisconsin, and the exactly. definitely difference. Yeah. Yeah, everybody's buying the stuff for the same price. So now, when you're in one of these kind of high cost of living areas, your your labor rates are going to be a lot higher. Your occupancy expenses are going to be a lot higher. So it it's a huge deterrent, um, I think, to to not only profitability. But to those areas being served by, uh, you know, retailers eventually because they're just going to kind of get priced out of the market. So you'd recommend, if if possible, if you can figure out a way to purchase your own real estate without you know, burying yourself long term due to potential appreciation of the building, cross lease agreements between the two different legal entities. Those are all ways to help the bottom line. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think that if you if you have any chance to buy real estate to run your business out of, um, I I can't really think of too many reasons why you wouldn't. Uh, right. You know, I'm sure I'm sure there's something out there that somebody could trip me up with, but I I just don't see it. You know, because that's not going to go away. You're always going to have that. And the the beautiful part about it is that if you buy something and you can afford it today it's it's not going up your you know your mortgage is not going to go up in price and that was that was one of the things that i always kind of laughed about to myself was when we bought our property we paid our monthly mortgage payment was six hundred dollars less than i was paying in rent and it was it, it was more space and you know and it all was that. fixed for x amount of years and it was and it was fixed where the you know the lease was going to keep going up um and that's you know it, in in our market i think we were you know i remember thinking ten dollars a square foot was kind of the going rate for good retail that was 20 years ago 25 years ago and you know now these little strip malls that go up in in kind of the the uh retailish type areas i mean they're getting 25 dollars a square foot you know that's that's more than doubled what what i always thought was the appropriate amount to pay so right. Yeah, if you can buy, and I think there's a lot of areas of the country where uh, commercial real estate is still affordable. I think we also get trapped um, 
as an industry by people wanting to be in the, the best building or right. the, the best location. And retail, it, you know, I wouldn't go in a back alley if you can avoid it, but people are going to find you if you, you know, if you have either a brand, you know, where they're on the dealer locator and they punch it into their phone, they're going to drive right to your door anyway. I just, I don't know if, if having to be in the, those best locations is really feasible in the future because the, the rates have just gotten so high. Yeah, and we're seeing a lot of, uh, we actually are seeing a lot of the newer shops basically say we're, we're not in the prime retail space, we're a block off, our lease rates are significantly less, and we're going to try to start out with a small smaller footprint and, and make it work. And, and they're generally, again, starting from scratch, so they're, they're just trying to make sure they can get over the hump. And a lot of them are service-centric uh, bricks and mortar locations, and it, it's it is pretty interesting and my clients that I've spoken to they're like well yeah people will go a block off and oftentimes you have better parking too so it's easier to get it get it <laughs> exactly yeah yeah so so with your little your internal science experiment financial science experiment with the uh <laughs> with all of the tinkering you're doing with um service and and, and charging full retail how great of a difference did that affect your your profitability over say the last five years that you owned the shop? What, did it did it continue to improve, or was there sort of a a leveling off after you had done all these changes? So I think it, it leveled off probably about five years ago. You know, as far as profitability, what we could kind of uh, get out of it, where we were comfortable. I think we I think if we had wanted to carry on the experiment, I think we could have possibly gone up higher um but there you know you do hit some points where you're thinking i don't know if i can charge any more for this or that you know or you know you're not going to be able to charge more for the for the product itself real you know there's a few places where you can kind of write your own rules um but you know you're you're kind of hamstrung by the vendors and what their advertised pricing is on things yeah. and then on labor there there's a certain point you know, and going back to the beginning where I said that people aren't surprised or at all about you, their repair ticket being line line itemed, where they're they're paying extra for the things that would not have been included in the tune-up. Uh, but there's a point where it, I think it it does start to feel like you're gouging, you know, and 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 so many retailers I think feel like that's if they charge at all, and and that I'd argue is absolutely not the case, but. Those the ten years that we had uh, our point of sale system and we're working with it. The first five years were really kind of the experimentation, and then the last five years, uh, it just it became you know it just made it so much easier to run the business that then I think we were enjoying kind of the fruits of the labor of of having really dialed in the point of sale where ordering was no longer a, a lot of work. You know, it had become so easy. Um, that then I think we were just enjoying the the what the point of sale was giving to us in terms of making it easier to run the business. So would you say that for a lot of retailers, the specific changes that you did, it's really going to be kind of specific to the to the market or type of products, but you have to kind of kind of create your own own recipe for profitability is or do you think no, what I, you've I, done is going <clears> to <throat> follow suit for just about anybody. I think what we did and and there's a lot and I'm not the only guy that 
that did this. I didn't kind of invent this wheel. There's a lot of really savvy retailers no, out there, yeah. a lot smarter than I am. Um, it's basically you you get away from the discounting. You know, it's kind of is one of the you know there's there's all these little areas that you do. You get away from the discounting. You start charging for things. You get the employees behind it. You know where. I mean, you can have an employee that wants to throw on everything. I had a mechanic once that every time he did a basic tune-up, he had the drivetrain off the bike because it was dirty. And, he, you know, it was like, well, they didn't pay for that. Ah, but it's dirty. You know, so you, <laughs> yeah. you can't do that. Um, so you, you just, you have to get the employees behind it where they're not, you know, throwing everybody a water bottle or discounting, you know, everything under the sun. So it's... I don't think anything was really specific to us. I think it's just specific across the industry to just, you know, really make sure you're holding your margin. Um, and if you can't, what is that telling you? It's, you know, is the product bad? Uh, is the product oversaturated in your market? Um, you know, if you're, if you're having to fight, if, if people are coming in and saying they can get, you know, product X down the street for cheaper, um, you have to look at that really hard because as soon as you start, you know, well, I'm going to, I'm going to automatically match that price. If that goes on long enough, um, you're, you're, you're going to be in trouble. Right. So kind of back to when you've sold the business and having a really good set of books, is there, um, you know, I know in some businesses there's, there's sort of, when you're doing a business valuation, it's the, the business itself, plus inventory, but there's a factor based off of profitability. Were, did you have a pretty clear understanding of what you should be able to get based off of the profit margins, gross sales, uh, and, and those specifics? So yeah, valuing a business is really, is I think one of those things that most, obviously from people I've talked to, that nobody understands it, but it's actually a really, really simple formula and it's right. based on profits. Um, at the end of the day, your books are going to go um, to the SBA. Generally speaking, they're going to for for a bank. They're going to use an SBA loan to buy a you know bike shop like this, and you have to be able to sh show the profitability. And everything just goes into a formula. Okay, if this buyer is you know they're bringing some of their own money, we're gonna the bank is going to give them X, and the debt service to that loan has to be able to be shown by the business to cover that and pay the new owner. Um, so, so there's no black, there's no black magic really in, in uh, valuing a business. Inventory is always a separate deal. So inventory, right. you know, it, and the buyer is going to pay for your inventory. If you have a bunch of dated inventory, then, you know, that's, you're going to negotiate, uh, you know, percentage off of that. But the, the bank is basically buying the, the business and what the the profits have shown in the past to be able right. to do. There's there's no um, well we think it could do better if you know the new owner just was you know on site more or had more enthusiasm or whatever you know those are all that's all great to talk about but the only thing that's going to help you sell the business and value the business is what your profits were. All right, I think we're running low on time, but I have one more question. So if you uh, could go back in time and change a business practice, what, what's the single greatest thing that you wish you, you either hadn't done or had done? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. I wish I had 
been better at managing people, um, I think. I had some really, really amazing employees over the years. And I had I had one employee um, that was that I had hired at the previous business, and and he was with me, our store manager. He's still with the business, and he and I really gelled. Um, it, he, I think it was primarily him because he was just he could deal with me. Um, but I, I think that if there was one thing I could go back and do better, it would have been able to. I, I would have tried to be better at understanding some of the employees' needs and wants a little bit better. Um, because it, when you lose a good employee, it's always really hard to, to replace them. And I think right. for me, that was the big thing was, I think I was, uh, maybe too hard on some people and not understanding enough of others. Perfect. Well, thank you. Um, I think we'll conclude. Thank you so much, uh, David and, and we'll, I'm sure you'll be on another one of these. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I love talking about this stuff. Great. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Scott. Bye. Bye-bye. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at nbda.com. Mm-hmm.